Hello, everyone. This is G.A. Lingaro, author of Isadora and the Immortal Chains, and you're listening to the HP Lovecast podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 43 of the HP Lovecast podcast. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on the horror and spy genres. And I'm Nicholas Stiak. I am a pop culture scholar of peplum films, industrial music, horror studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. For today's episode, we'll be discussing Lady Lovecraft, a one-shot comic book created and written by Mike Shea and illustrated by Rob Wilkinson. Alright, so first, let's do a little background on Lady Lovecraft and then do a little plot synopsis. So, Lady Lovecraft is a pandemic comic. It was first realized just as the pandemic started back in 2020. It was written, drawn, kickstarted, produced, and shipped on the course of a little over a year, so quite ambitious and super successful. The comic is written by Mike Shea, who also writes the other crowdfunded Lovecraftian comic, Miskatonic High, which had a crossover with Lovecraft P.I., which is a comic we covered way back in episode 15 in our older days. The artist of Lady Lovecraft is Rob Wilkinson, who originally did a variant cover for Miskatonic High. So I came across this comic as I like to uh, scrounge around Kickstarter for Peplum and Lovecraft comics now and then. And since this was a self-contained one-shot comic, I went to pluck it up. It was also because it was a female-fronted Lovecraft story, which is always refreshing to see and talk about. Um, I think this comic might take place in the Miskatonic High universe. I'm not sure. When we read the uh, commentary in the back, it kind of hinted at that. But we haven't read the Miskatonic High comic, so we're going to take this uh, analysis on this comic on its own. Uh, but as a side note, folks who do comic books, if you do commentaries at the end, we thank you. Please do those. Those are awesome. So, Plot. It is the 1780s, and Lil lives alone with her grandmother, Abigail Lovecraft, in a mansion atop a hill overlooking a coastal New England town. Lil feels oppressed in her grandmother's house, a fog keeping her inside. One day, her grandmother's lawyer, Samuel, arrives for a weekly check-in on her affairs. Lil is immediately smitten with him. Later, Samuel passes her a note that they should meet up. They do, and Samuel tells her of his ambitious plans and proposes marriage. Lil accepts. However, her grandmother becomes extremely irate. The next day, Abigail has disappeared, leaving Lil all alone in the house. As the days go by, Lil becomes more distraught. Strange things begin to happen. The mirrors in the house disappear, and Lil imagines seeing scars on her forehead and eyes in her fontaine hair. She eventually makes her way to the basement where she finds her grandmother, dead and sitting in a chair. She has been possessed by an entity called Nephthys, <laughs> who wants to inhabit Lil's body. 
Lil's vision clouds, and she starts to see images of how her grandmother came to building the town's lighthouse, the old house they live in, a strange tablet of Cthulhu on it, and so on. The next day, Samuel comes for his weekly visit and finds Lil alone. Lil shows him her dead grandmother. Samuel talks more of his grand plans, of moving into the house, taking on her fortune, and becoming a politician. Neftis, speaking internally to Lil, says she has other choices. Lil disappears. It is now 40 years later. Samuel has come back to Lil's house, now his, through decades of legal wrangling. He reads Lil's diary. He realizes that the last entry was just written. Lil makes a dramatic entrance, saying that Samuel's time has come to an end. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. All right, so, Michelle, observations. Overall, what did you think of Lady Lovecraft? Um, I actually thought that Lady Lovecraft was an enjoyable read. Um, like you mentioned in the background information, it was a, a lady or female-centric uh, story, which I really appreciated. Um, I thought it was an entertaining one-shot, uh, pretty good self-contained story um, that was definitely steeped in Lovecraft lore. Um, but it, like, a, like I was saying, um, it was refreshing, though, to focus in on uh, two primary female characters in the story. Uh, since it's usually so often a male character-driven uh, story. What about you, Nick? Um, mixed feelings. Uh, the writing, I, I'm for. I, I, again, female-fronted stuff's good. Um, uh, I like self-contained uh, comics. That's, you know, that's always... Uh, we do a lot of comics, not just in this podcast, but in real life as well. You know, you've you done uh, editorial work on comics and stuff like that. Uh, the journal and whatnot. And it... One of the things that always pops up is sometimes it's kind of intimidating to get into a series. Uh, you, you know, like, where do I start with Spider-Man? Where do I start with Superman? There's decades of stuff. So when you have, like, a one-shot where it's self-contained, I do like those. Um, but, yeah, I like the story. Uh, it's very gothic, and I think we'll talk about that. I didn't get so... I mean, there is Lovecraft here. I wasn't getting as much cosmic horror as I was getting gothic horror. This is gothic trappings galore and i'm not an expert on the gothic uh genre despite you and i have co-editing co-edited an entire book on gothic literature to postmodern <laughs> to, to postmodern to, to be, be fair. fair but but i liked it um my mixed feelings come with the artwork and we'll talk about that in a bit more detail in fact you know maybe maybe we'll get that out of the way right now just uh uh, sure. Why don't we talk with visuals, and then we can go on to um, textual. other, other uh, yeah. things. The, the comic is successful textually. Um, Artwork-wise, this is one of the... When I first read Lady Lovecraft and saw the art, I actually thought it was kind of amateurish and novice. It just didn't look kind of up to snuff. Um, but second pass through, one, I started noticing kind of like some... I'm going to say gags, even though it's not humorous, but kind of Easter eggy, subtle, I'm going to call it like stuff you'd see in Fight Club, you know, like a bleep, you know, between the frames type stuff, which I did appreciate a bit more. But when you read the commentary in the back, they actually made a conscious decision to draw the comic this particular way, as if you're like looking at uh, sketches in a diary, because this comic is told through the perspective of reading a diary. And so they, they went through an effort to try to make it look like 
if, as if you're reading a diary, these would have been accompanying sketches and stuff in it. And I don't think it was successful, unfortunately. It just it looks really novice, which is a shame because they have the artist Rob Wilkinson. They show his original um, variant cover for Miskatonic High, which kind of got him this gig. And that cover rocks. Uh, it looks good. It's detailed. It The, the cover actually shows um, Lil... Um, because uh, it's all a precursor to this, going by this commentary, but you don't know that. You just see this Miskatonic cover, but it's detailed. It looks awesome. And yeah, and uh, I would describe it since we're, we're, <laughs> we're in an audio environment, that it is a portrait of her, kind of done all old-style gothic, uh, with her, her head and her shoulders framed with a lot of eyeballs and... Tentacles. Like tentacles and like I would say like kind of wilting flowers. Um, it's very well done. I I I kind of wish instead of going experimental with the diary style, if he doesn't stuck with this style that was on the cover of Miskatonic High Number Five and just played it safe with that, I would have been on board. That cover rules. The inside cover here, there's just too many sequences. There's like a, a sequence when they're like uh, on a hill looking down at the town and it looks kind of boxy and I, I don't know. Uh, it's it's serviceable. It gets the job done. What I do like is, and we'll talk about some of the little things that are hidden in the pages. Those are good. Oh, here we go. Um, Lil is looking down on the town and it just looks so it, 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 Well, You know what it reminds me of? It makes me think of like a logging village you know that's set up uh, alongside of a river or you know a coastline so it looks very old school uh old timey but that is kind of in keeping with the timeline because i think this was supposed to be like the 1790s or something like 1780s. that. 1780s i mean i get yeah. the setting it's just the execution i i think it's a noble idea and maybe just executed differently but it, Again, I'll I'll go with the camp of if they played it safe with the Miskatonic High style art uh, on that cover that Wilkinson did, moi Chef's kiss on that for sure. Well, and I think to maintain that kind of style, which okay, I'm gonna go make a comparison: Bernie Wrightson mm -hmm. uh, versus a very uh, simple, straightforward style free-flowing kind of existential type of visual that we actually have in this comic yeah and and i think that's where the comic does succeed is because that there is some existential dreamlike sequences where things kind of pop in and out of existence that stuff is nice and that that's that's definitely taking advantage of the the comic medium um so let, let's 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 talk a little bit about the text now. So oh I oh I can I talk yeah. about the visuals? Oh you still got <laughs> oh we're still visual okay yeah because I'm I'm a little more um, in tune not in tune but uh, I was okay with the visuals a little more than you were. Mm -hmm. um, I actually liked the use of the ink wash. I thought it actually worked well to kind of have that. Um, I think it was a tea or coffee i don't remember what the ink wash or maybe it was india ink but it definitely has a more sepia feel which i think really works for this kind of time you know 1780s time frame uh 
and I think that works better than if you'd just gone with a black and white or if you'd gone full color. I think full color would have just kind of like taken you out of that whole time period. Yeah, it was India ink. So unhappy if normal watercolors, Wilkinson mixed India ink with vodka so that the ink would leave a very wet, watery texture but dry very quickly on the page. The result was artwork that looked like it was made in the 18th century and scribbled and sketched into a diary that was warped by the wet, damp fog from the ocean. No, definitely. I And when you, when you read that passage and then thinking back and looking at the art style, then Wilkinson did exactly what he, what he had, had set out to do. And so that I applaud him for. Now, generally speaking, the art style, I would agree with you. I would have liked a little more towards Bernie Wrightson than the more simplistic. Um, but I you, think... But that you've the, got a big soft spot for Bernie Wrightson. What, what, I do. What's that, I do. What's that big book on the shelf right behind you in the studio? Uh, Creepy Presents uh, Bernie Wrightson yeah, from Dark yeah. Horse. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I definitely do. Um highlight was meeting him so but um i will say that um i i like the art style uh i thought it went well with the story i thought that there were some really nice visual cues um for instance um he has uh on one of the pages uh wilkinson does eyes in the sky overlooking the unfolding activities um, and that reminded me of, thank you, Nick, it, it was Coppola's uh, Dracula. Um, I thought it was Frank Ligella's, although he, his eyes would have been great in the sky. <laughs> um, but I, I really, I did like that kind of nod. I also liked... Um, oh, hold on real mm-hmm. quick, because you said the eyes in the sky are a nod to Dracula. Mm-hmm. I'm flipping through trying to find that page, but I see the lips in the sky. All mm-hmm. of a sudden, I kind of think, is that a nod to Rocky Horror? Oh, it could be. Yeah. Yeah, that was, yeah, I think it's actually further the other way, but um, that was one of the things that I, that I thought was done nice, and I thought it gave a nice nod, even, even if it wasn't intentional, I still, it made me think of that. Uh, The other thing that I liked is further in the story, when uh, Lil is at a crossroads of whether she'll go off with Samuel and be the good wife. Um, and mother to kids and subservient wife subservient wife (laughs) or whether she's going to choose to forge her own path and find strength um, in her own own self and her own identity and there is a one page drawing that Wilkinson did of her Um, it's a high angle looking down on her she's got a content smile on her face and it is I'm I'm in love with that page. I think it's just gorgeous. It's beautifully done. I think it captures that moment when you feel like there's an euphoria of making a decision that you're most comfortable in and you're ready to go forward. And I I thought he really captured that well. Well, something I just noticed looking mm-hmm. at that page, because she looks happy, mm-hmm. there's so many prior pages to this where she's weeping. Mm-hmm. Lots of tears coming out. But on this page, it's the monster in her fontage hair that's weeping. I didn't notice that. That's true. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, and she's even got a smile. There's the gothic uh, drapery of her dress. It, it just it works really well. In this case, I would almost think 
a little bit less background detail and a little more focus on her might have been nice there but overall I thought that that page did it for me um, I would also say one of the things that I always look at when I'm going through a comic is their consistency in character um, portrayal and I mean that visually and there has been a number of, of comics that I've read over the years where it was hard to tell that you know person X was the same person on the next page because they weren't drawn very well so I like that there is you know there's definitely consistency there um, I think my one uh, thing that I would say I would have liked if the font was like a, a shade darker I did find that a little bit difficult to read um, but that's just that's me. That's my my poor eyesight. That's not anybody else. But for me, hey hey, typeface, typeface is the uh, underdog third component of comics. You know, the, all the awards are given out and acknowledgments are given mm -hmm. out to writers and artists, but mm -hmm. the, the importance of typeface out there. And I I get it that there's you know uh, Wilkinson and Shay are actually trying to balance like. A narrative in the uh, journal, dialogue, internal thought, any sort of narrative bridges has to take place. And I mean, for that, they've done a nice job. They kept a consistency of, of visual tone. So um, I'm, I'm a bit more, I'm okay with the visuals. I agree. I would have liked a little more towards Wrightson, but um, this is an independent, and that doesn't mean that the quality's expectation is less or anything like that. But, you know, you don't have a big budget, and um, I think that Shay and Wilkinson did a beautiful job visually. So, style in text. You were leaning toward Lovecraft style, and I was leaning toward Gothic style in this one. So, so what were some of like kind of the Lovecraft homages that you were uh, picking up on? Well, I think they were more. Um, part of it was homage by use of names <laughs> and places. For instance, I mean, we have Abigail Lovecraft. <laughs> we, you know, it's a funny because her name is Lady Lovecraft. It's not like she's a relation to H.P. Lovecraft. This isn't one of those stories where they try to cameo Lovecraft in as, oh, you know, the writers in his own work. We've read our fair share of those. We, we have. But, but you know what it reminds me of is there's that one writer-artist that you've met because he's done mummies and stuff, and I don't remember his name, but he did a comic called Lori Lovecraft. Um, we've met him at a couple SoCal uh, conventions and whatnot, mm -hmm. and I just can't remember, but you've picked up some of his, like, monster comics. Yeah, and unfortunately, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Yeah, but me, me too. And I don't remember what happened sorry. to Lori Lovecraft. I think it's a detective story, but it's just one of those, you know, it's got the Lovecraft moniker on it. As a nice, you know, hat tip. Yeah, so, you know, even though there's really not a relation, um, it's... There's the there's the undertone of of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft in well, there. Well, this it is told through a diary entry, so that makes me think of you know part three of Call of Cthulhu, the the madness mm -hmm. from the sea, which is when he's reading the diary of the sailor. Yeah, definitely. There's the epistolary uh, mm -hmm. structure there. Um, you know the the name Hawthorne is used, which is Nathaniel Hawthorne. Places Boston. Um, 
we've got the the nod towards sailors the sea this is a port town um so, very, you know, very shadow over insmithy is here uh, i would almost say that the town isn't overtly named but i wouldn't I I have a feeling it takes place in Innsmouth, mm-hmm. or at least it it's not explicitly said so, but I just have a feeling it could be. Yeah, I mean, in this this um, you know, this house is up on the hill, um, you know, and I think that there's been a number of stories for Lovecraft where the, you know, the house has been up on some sort of hill or even just generally uh in horror you know the house that's up on the hill is always creepy see to me that's the gothic trappings of this Mm -hmm. book this book is gothic as heck uh you know you've got and again not too much of an external gothic but i know a lot of gothic literature is lady trapped in a house (laughs) especially if it's a house on a hill but i mean we just read mexican gothic a year or so ago we saw crimson peak and an early episode we did that see hall thomas spawn of the green abyss which was Mm -hmm. a a lady trapped in a seaside uh, house yeah that was the one i was uh that i was reminded of reading through lady lovecraft (laughs) i kept thinking back to that story i couldn't remember the name of it though the very first page, you know, shows the mansion on a hill, and it says the house of Lady Lovecraft. Totally makes me think of Poe's House of Usher. Um, I, you know, and the look of the house actually reminds me of um, the house from Psycho. Psycho. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of Maniac Mansion. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, the, the gothic and cosmic, I mean, the cosmic stuff definitely comes later in the book. But uh, I, I think the gothic overtones is definitely folks who like gothic stuff. That despite, the you know, the cover being a scantily clad... Li- Actually, I got the variant cover. I got the variant cover because she's wearing hosiery because I'm, a, you know, I like that sort of stuff. But- I actually <laughs> like the other cover myself, you know, and, uh, being the person in this relationship that's not so, like, drawn to the... Pin-up. Uh, well, the falling apart uh, <laughs> tights. So, let's talk about... Um, well, I will say um, uh, a little bit more towards Lovecraft is the unreliable narrator. And that's one of the things... Yeah, so I, I brought it up kind of earlier. There's a fight club aspect to mm-hmm. this story. And, and that I, I just couldn't pull out another text to compare it to, but... Uh, the the story starts off kind of. Eh, it's a this is a slow burn story, by the way, folks. That despite you know Lovecraft and tentacles and monsters, you know there's no there's no bloodshed or anything. This is more on the carnival of souls uh, spectrum of slow burn horror here. But it is after you know um, her grandma leaves and she wakes up you know alone in the house. That when things really all of a sudden the the light switch flips that things start really going on and that's when we're you know things start happening where this is where the unreliable narrator comes in and because she's kind of i think she's slowly at this point getting possessed by this other being that nefty because you know she'll she'll wake up and she'll start brushing her hair and she's like wait a second that's not my brush that's my grandma's brush or who mm-hmm. who took all these mirrors away? I don't remember doing this, and I can only attribute to that that you know there's 
pockets of you know her being amnesiac, and it's when this other entity has taken her over to start doing other things, such as hiding in mirrors or doing other stuff. And that kind of makes me think of the, you know, the Edward Norton Tyler Durden uh, relationship in, in Fight Club. That you know, one's only active at one time. It's two people occupying the same body, well, split fighting personalities, kind of split personality mm-hmm. type stuff. Except you know. It, this is an actual monster. I mean, <laughs> the monster is glomped on her head. But for all purposes, though, I mean, we don't know. As a reader, we don't know that. We just see her her hair. <laughs> but at, at the same time, at what point does it stop being her hair and it's a, and is now the monster? During that, you know, time span, that's when we have an unreliable narrator. Her, her diary entries, are they hers? Are they the monster writing it? Who, what's really or a going combination on? of it, both, depending <coughs> on whose reality is, exactly. is the driving force of that um, diary I, entry. And can I say, I, I actually appreciate the monster. I, I like her her poofy fontage hair, but and it has these little like clippy things that give her you know anchors to her head. Well, but she, it, she called him sort of like reptilian. Mm-hmm. But reptilian in an in an almost attractive way. <laughs> I, but what it reminds me of is there was a video game I played when I was younger called Half Life, and there is a one of the common monsters in Half Life is called a a head crab I think it is or whatever. But it's these like little. It looks like the monster in her head. It's like this little crabby thing. It doesn't have pinchers, but it's got like four little crab legs. And what it does is it jumps on people's heads and it turns them into kind of alien zombies. So you'll see a scientist walking around with this head crab thing on him. And when sort I was, of like a face hugger. So, but, well, in, but instead of it being a face hugger, it's more of a head hugger <laughs> that's kind of coming from the back to the front. Yeah. Yeah, but but when I when I when the monster finally reveals itself and it's clumped in her head like that, I just thought, oh man, Half Life. It just made me think of Half Life. Um, but it is a body hopping monster, which is always kind of an interesting thing when you know a monster is tired of being in one vessel and now needs to be in another vessel. Um, and that's kind of what's going on in here. As, but as it's you know doing its vessel hopping, we as readers don't know until the end when you know the monster makes its overt you know hey here's visions of what's led up to this point. I I'm now glomped onto your head. <laughs> I'm kind of a mimic of your hair, and that's kind to me that's actually kind of cool. And we're getting into body horror territory. That's true. Uh, definitely body horror, but almost like a beautiful body horror. Which is kind of a, a juxtaposition of what you would typically think of body horrors being very bloody, but there's almost like uh, yeah, one of the things that I felt about this story is that it was a coming of age story. Mm-hmm. So in a way, this monster is is her way of coming of age, and it's there's a beauty about it that you wouldn't necessarily associate with traditional body horror. Yeah, I I, I didn't quite get the coming of age story. Until, until we started talking about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, because she's a young woman. She's lived a sheltered life. She's going to be married off. Um, the, the other kind of motif in this story that goes with that is there's a lot of frogs in this story. And They're familiar. <laughs> Maybe. I, I, uh, I, at first I thought it was kind of a callback to Innsmouth because when the characters run around Innsmouth, you know, there's that croaking noises everywhere. We've read a, a couple other stories that really... Uh, um, 
bring that croaking type stuff up. I just thought it was an Innsmouth callback, but the commentary at the end of Lady Lovecraft is, you know, they're using the frogs as a metaphor, you know, from Tadpole the Frog to show her growth and transformation. So there's all these visual cues of of the tadpoles and blood vessels and frogs and stuff. And and once I read that, I, I kind of smacked my forehead for not like picking that up because that was clever. Mm-hmm. And, and I do I do have to say, um, one of my favorite panels, it occurs a couple pages before your favorite panel where she looks like she's getting beamed up. But it's after, you know, the the being makes its uh, appearance. Um she she's uh you know Samuel's come back she's like oh man what am I gonna do woe is me woe is me and it cuts to a panel she's sitting there weeping and there's a frog on her shoulder just out of the blue there, there's no panel before it showing a frog leaping up on her it's just there mm-hmm. and I I that panel I loved because it goes back to that unreliable narrator thing it's it's kind of a fight clubby thing is the frog really there or not if it is there she's pretty you know nonchalant about a frog being you know her familiar or on her um whatever it's one to me that's the the gags and again I'm using gags in quotations here because it's not funny per se but I'm I'm still going to call it a visual gag that he's just right there um, but it's, you know, capping off the, the transformation, the, the body horror mm-hmm. aspect. And again, I, I underscore what you were saying. This is a bloodless body horror, which I mm-hmm. don't think you normally can do, but they do do it. Yeah, and, and they actually do it successfully. They do it subtly. Um, uh, because when you mentioned the tadpoles, I was like, oh, yeah, there were some um, frames where there's like these darker blobby things that are kind of like swimming towards her um that to me i'm like oh that totally makes sense that that would be you know tadpoles their eggs um you know in oh some eggs cases, oh slap my forehead again they are i thought they were blood vessels oh okay i i took it as eggs but no no but, i think you're 100 percent right that those are eggs yeah Blood vessels could work too in a even more like DNA changing your whatever, but I, I think the metaphor I think you're right. I think the metaphor is mm-hmm. tadpole eggs, but But you know, it does substantiate, you know, this woman coming of age and being on the cusp of, okay, are you gonna if are you gonna stay with tradition? Are you gonna do what is expected of you? Or are you gonna take a chance? Are you gonna take a leap of faith? And, uh, leap, and leap, frog leap. I, I see what you did there. Usually, you like how I did that? Usually I'm the one making I know. really terrible puns. I know. Well, you know, I had to step in and, and you know, help you out there since you, you were punless so far. But, um, no, I mean, it's really uh, expertly done when you, when you start looking at those layers. And like you said at the beginning, Nick, uh, it is nice when you have creators, particularly creators that we wouldn't usually get to hear your voice, then having commentary at the end to kind of describe the, the, the creative process, making different decisions, that's helpful for better understanding and for us as independent pop culture scholars, we are able to cue into that and bring that into the bigger dialogue coming of age story one of the things that happens in here is because she is kind of presented with a choice to go with this samuel guy and uh 
I, I do gotta say that this is probably a sign of the times type thing. When they Samuel really only has like two kind of big sequences before and after, and the, the before sequence, you know, uh, Lil, I'm, I'm gonna assume Lil has been very sheltered, not just under her grandma, but her parents as well. So Samuel's probably like the only guy she's ever seen, because mm -hmm. she falls for him immediately. Oh, oh, he's the most handsome guy. I can't, I can't wait to ride off into the sunset with him and start a family and stuff. And 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 when he kind of reciprocates, but. When that first happens, he, he's laying on some kind of like, uh, I'm just going to say, I thought it was this period piece misogyny, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, you'll take care of me and all this other stuff and all. But but it's it's after when he comes back um, to find, you know, the grandma dead that he's he 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 has that facade of niceties obliterated he lays it full on here like yeah the fortune's here these are totally mine you're gonna do what i say and all this other stuff i'm like whoa this isn't just period piece misogyny you're an actual bad guy yeah he really is <laughs> i mean i think one of the things that kind of like made me head scratch was when they they met in the the village for like the first time when they were actually able to to talk and of course you know he was talking about all of his dreams and of course she's kind of like thinking oh i'm going to be able to be part of those dreams and then when they got back to the door it was like he wanted her to sign a paper that says that their engagement was was legitimate and i'm like okay so he's an attorney i get it <laughs> but at the same time i'm kind of like if you are in love with her, like she's in love with you, you're probably not thinking, hey, I need to get her to sign a piece of paper. Prenups, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which they didn't have back then. But, um, you know, that does come out in the end what he was up to. And, yeah, he is a dastardly fellow. And it I, I do gotta say the commentary in the back kind of alludes to that, like with the Jane Austen type stuff. I I don't know nothing about Jane Austen, but I, I do know that folks love the Mister Darcy, especially after the Colin Firth Mister Darcys. But I, I remember the the commentary in Matthew, the back. Matthew McFadden is pretty hot too. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's Mister Darcy. But but like the, those kind of like. I don't know what type of genre those are. I'm just going to say manners and high society Victorian age type stuff. But, you know, like where the, the bad boys are really the good boys and all that type of stuff that they were trying to hint at in here. Yeah, um, <laughs> there's definitely that. I actually thought of um, with the house up on the hill overlooking the sea. I think it's Rebecca. And I, and I, it's... Are we going Daphne Hitchcocking Dem in here? Da no, Daphne Demorne. Demorne, I think, uh, who did a lot of those very dark, gothic-type stories. Uh, that, this, uh, to me, reminded me of that as well. Mm. Wait, we saw, we saw Rebecca. That, that's a Hitchcock, right? Not that one. Oh, okay. Oh, Not a Hitchcock. Oh, okay, okay. But yes, we did see that one, but it's not that one. Film scholar background, you're rapidly failing me in this gothic text here. <laughs> um, one other kind of uh, visual gag I love, and again, th this one I'm going to call it on the funny side. It's the morning after she wakes up alone. Mm -hmm. Her grandma's gone. She's looking out this big circular window, and the last... The last uh, heading says, Grandmother was nowhere to be found. But in the corner of the frame is a 
completely encased skeleton. Yeah, I did think that was kind of odd. <laughs> I, I'm going to assume that this is, it's going for a haunted house kind of trope. You know, I think of the Vincent Price house on Haunted Hill with the iconic skeleton walking down that. Maybe this is a reference to that. Or, you know, it's an old ward curiosity that they've got a primate or a Neanderthal. And it's sort of like, you know, you've got your den with your taxidermy on the walls, the buffalo you hunted and hang up there. I can only assume it's just a curio that's there. But when I saw it, and I'm like, Grandma cannot be found. But then there's a skeleton right next to it. I'm like, Grandma's right there. I mean, it's not really her, but it's just that 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 serendipitously executed panel had me kind of roll in there. Yeah. Um. And in the beginning, I think they actually there's the two drivers uh, that even are chatting that the house is supposedly haunted. So it, yeah, I I remember that skeleton and thinking, hmm, what? Why are you there, Mister yeah, Skeleton? Why are you there? Well, it is kind of funny. One of, one of the things I had a little, not necessarily an issue, but I think it's one of the cases where you're getting the cart before the horses. Lil keeps saying, oh, I'm, I'm so afraid. This house is fearful and stuff. But all that stuff doesn't really happen until after her grandma disappears. But before that, there's like a kind of a peppering here and there. You know, like she heard noises, but the door was locked. I'm like, is that, it's more telling instead of showing which which is typical of Lovecraft, and yeah. you know, like her door is locked, and it kind of made me think of August Derelict's uh, stories. The first one where the uh, fellow comes to be the transcriber. Oh yeah, he's got a don't and, come in my room at all. Yeah, and he's like, uh, you know, he gets locked in his room, and I feel there's definitely that kind of technique storytelling in here. It, it took a second read to pick that up because. It, it, before that, I'm like, why are you really afraid? Yeah, your grandma's kind of a hard ass. Your house is a house. And some kind of weird stuff's going on, but all the weird stuff comes after. So I'm like, are you kind of afraid for no reason? But upon second reading, there's all these subtleties. Mm -hmm. and, and, this, and let's be honest. If your bedroom opened up to a hallway of a skeleton waiting for there, maybe, <laughs> maybe I need to check my skeleton privilege. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I, I do also want to say the commentary in the back said that the book has an EC Comics ending type to it, where, you know, the, the guy finds the diary. You know, he's a dastardly guy. This house is mine. I'm I'm going to be rich, rich. And, and all of a sudden, Lil jumps up and goes, well, she doesn't really go ooga booga, but, uh, you know, he's the guy's dead. You know, at that point, it's oh, all yeah, off screen. He, he's not going to make it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but they called it an EC Comics ending, and... There, that totally, there is a Tales from the Crypt vibe at the very end here. And I could see this being a Tales from the Crypt slash creep show anthology type story. Yeah, I mean, this this could actually easily be made into a short skit uh, for one of those Tales of the Crypt type shows. We have, um, we talked a little bit about the female characters, um at the beginning but uh you know just to kind of reiterate uh lil and the grandmother uh lovecraft are really the driving force of this story which is quite uh a refreshing and it's a twist on the typical lovecraftian uh tales so my only kind of i don't know what to say about it but i'll just try to say it is 
at the very end though how much in control is Lil? Because she does have uh, Heftus, Hef the the monster, you know, part uh -huh. of her. So, again, unreliable narrator. At what point, how much is her? How much is, you know, the monster? Um, so at the very end, when it is a hybrid, you know, how much is, you know, her female agency? And how much is the monster's agency? Or is this kind of like a... Like the ending of Ghost in the Shell, where you know Major Kusanagi and the the puppeteer are one and the same, or something. Uh, but it's it's something that they kind of think about of of how much of her agency still persists at the end. You know, she has her freedom, but does she really have her freedom? Because um, I'm assuming this is kind of a cyclical thing. She's going to basically become what her grandma was, and probably if she has a kid, it's gonna, the cycle's going to repeat and everything like that. So. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I did find that troubling, but at the same time, um, I mediate that through the fact that we at least have a woman's voice, um, which I appreciate as a woman to be able to have a story where there are female characters um, as the main characters. Um, and I took that probably, yes, I also had trouble with okay, how much is her, how much is the monster um, in both of their lives? Because both women, well, the grandmother did a lot. I mean, she designed the lighthouse, lighthouse the mm -hmm. house. She also had a very successful business. That was mm -hmm. the other thing that Samuel was trying to go after was, I think she had a shipping business. Side note, come back to that. There's a hilarious sequence there I want to bring up after this point. Okay. <laughs> um, so... Yes, the monster probably has a big part of the entire journey, but for her to make a decision to, I feel like it's almost like you're at the door. Do you invite Dracula in or do you not? And I feel like she kind of had that choice that she could either basically stay with tradition or find her, her identity, her path. Yes, it's with a monster, but I do appreciate at least the journey to that point. I do have a trouble with whether she's in control or the monster's in the control. But up to that point, I do think that at least there are female characters that we don't typically get. Well, maybe we need to ask the question slightly differently. Because mm -hmm. at the end, what if we put it this way? What monster do you want to be subservient to? Samuel, who, this is, he's a bad guy. At the end, he's a bad guy. He does not have her interest. He is a male monster. He just wants to use her and her fortunes and that for his gain. Mm -hmm. Or here's this other monster who is a <laughs> Lovecraftian deity who's <laughs> perched atop of her head, but that's going to grant her, I'm going to guess, some sort of. Uh, I don't know, confidence, power, uh, some other things, probably whatever. I, I'm guessing, you know, whatever the monster bestowed upon um, Abigail, which allowed her to become rich and successful mm -hmm. and all that stuff, Lil's going to get the same thing. So I guess the question is, is if you got it, if you have to go with the monster, what monster do you pick? One that's not going to respect you or one that's going to, I don't know if respect's the right word, but is at least... Uh, it's in a more. It's in their. It's in that monster's best interest that Lil is successful. 
Because then she's uh, the parasite needs a host. Host. Yeah. I would. I would. On a flip side, say, because she is not a reliable narrator necessarily. Because there's a monster on her head. But do we know that there's really a monster on her head? What if she goes down the path and she is successful, always thinking that there's a monster on her head, which no one else sees, Mm -hmm. and maybe it doesn't really exist, and she was able to find the power within herself. So I liked that there is that... That Perhaps. slight ambiguity that there mm-hmm. is no monster there in the first place because she, when she's immediately alone, that her whole world crumbles and th- this is the new reality she builds from. I, I don't know what because she's only met, read Mall Flanders, but but I, I I never thought of it that way as well. That there is a third option. That there is no monster. That she mm-hmm. truly is crazy. <laughs> Are the well, solution. and he, he tried to uh, Samuel tried to have her basically. He, that was his plan is to have her committed. True, um, which got foiled. Um, so yeah, maybe. Okay, so there's an maybe. option C here. Mm-hmm. I, I I think option B of there's a head crab on her <laughs> that no one else can see because you know it's camouflaging and that type of stuff. I get it. Um, yeah, you know you. Y- in the movie Slither, you don't know that there's a brain, a, you know, worm inside your head. That movie ruled, by the way. It did. Rule. <laughs> so, Maybe we'll have to discuss that one day. So, real quick, I, I think we're getting close to wrapping up, but we're talking about the the sequence earlier. Uh, I, I do have to kind of on a higher note here. This is one of those kind of comedy of manners. Okay. Um, when Samuel's talking to Abigail, they have this exchange. Miss Lovecraft, it's. One, I'm going to put my own inflections here of how I, I, I see this going down. Go for it. Miss Lovecraft, it's wonderful to see you still so able at your age. I'm not dead yet, Mr. Revere. I wouldn't appreciate it if you didn't attempt to hassle me to the grave. With such charm as that, we could be saddened to lose you, dear Lovecraft, Miss Lovecraft. Ha ha. That is, that is the equivalent of, like, the bitchy like retail response of i hope your day is as pleasant as you (laughs) and i loved it oh my gosh she's a (laughs) b well um i think on that note uh we're going to take a brief musical intermission before moving on to upcoming events we hope you join us back in a minute Welcome back. We want to say thank you to G.A. Longaro, who provided the opening bumper for this episode. Uh, G.A. is the writer-creator of Isidora and the Immortal Chains, another crowdfunded uh, Lovecraft comic, uh, published by Rubicon Comics. We wish him much success with his ongoing comic book series and all his endeavors. And in upcoming events for HP Lovecast Presents Fragments, we will be discussing the Guillermo del Toro's 1997 film Mimic, starring Mira Servino, 
Jeremy Northam Swoon, and Joss <laughs> Brolin. This episode will publish on Sunday the 26th. Wait, wait, wait. You can't swoon Jeremy Northam and not allow me to swoon Mira Servino. Okay, you have a moment. Go ahead. Swoon. Okay. Um, on HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, we will spotlight two or three special guests as they discuss their new or upcoming projects, as well as provide uh, some readings of their work. This episode will publish on Thursday, September 30th. And for our scholars from the Edge of Time programming, in September we'll be discussing the 2021 filmic adaptation of John Carter. That's not right. 2012. Twelve. Yes. Okay. <laughs> our notes, we flipped the digit. Yep. Sorry about that, folks. But it will be John Carter, who's starring uh, Taylor Kitsch, Lynn Collins, Samantha Morton, and Mork Strong. This episode will stream on Thursday, September 23rd. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com. We will be getting a new website very soon, folks. And, of course, you can also email us at hplovecast.gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, do consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we've either edited or contributed individual essays to. If you feel like donating a dollar or two, we also have a coffee account. A link is in the show notes. As always, thank you, everyone, for listening.